players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Lion's Eye Diamond, Swords to Plowshares, Dreadhorde Arcanus, and many others. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thraben University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Good evening, folks, and welcome to episode 26 of the Eternal Glory podcast. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Brian Koval and Bryant Cook. How are you all doing tonight? Pretty good, man. How are you? Oh, you know, about the same as two weeks ago, which is about the same as two weeks before that, which is about the same as two weeks before that, which is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could do that two or three more times before we'd find something different. Yeah, but I've demonstrated the loop, and since this isn't Magic Online, like, we can stop there. Right? Ooh. <laughs> I would like you to manually click through, Phil. I would like to see the loop being presented. <laughs> Alright, um, so starting as usual with our uh, donations section, uh, thank you very much to Dan Peterson for uh, throwing some money this way to support the podcast. It's uh, very much appreciated. Um, I know a lot of people are putting their charitable donations and such towards other things like COVID and Black Lives Matter and, and things of that general nature, which are very important. But, uh, you know, we're trying to keep our editor, Phil Blackman, paid. So uh, if you're enjoying what we're doing, consider supporting us in the future. Phil, how's uh, life been for you? What have you been up to? Um, life's been kind of weird. My sleep schedule has just gone absolutely insane in the past two weeks. Like, I'm having trouble getting to sleep and or sleeping through the night. Uh, so I, I don't know how exactly to reset myself, but I'm in desperate, desperate need of that so that my girlfriend can stop, like, coming out to the living room at 2 o'clock in the morning and shutting off the YouTube video that I've fallen asleep watching. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Have you considered staying up for the 3 a.m. Vintage Challenge and resetting that way? You know, that's a very good suggestion. Um, I'll, I'll keep it in mind. Maybe uh, consider playing some shops. Uh, yeah, I mean, anytime I try to stay up for a tournament like that, I fall asleep immediately. So maybe just plan, like really make an effort, and then you'll be asleep right on time. Um, yeah, otherwise, like, life's good. I've been I've been doing a lot of non-magic gaming been playing a lot of monster trains still and uh this game called hades which is a greek mythology inspired sort of like dungeon crawler roguelite um just got a bunch of updates and i hadn't played that in a few months so i went back and played some of that um been a little frustrated with magic online recently due to card availability issues there's all of these really cool cards that i want to play with that i can't get my hands on to save my life so Allosaurus Shepherd is a great example of that uh, from Jumpstart, which is available one in every 5,000 treasure chests. 
that's fucked. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Um, like, I have a long history with elves, and Allosaurus Shepherd is exactly the kind of spice that would turn me back on to elves. And I, I went to stream a video or record a video for YouTube. I even had a sweet list with shepherds, and it was just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, nope. So I streamed elves on Saturday with uh, with Newton. Hello, Newton. And I had to borrow his Allosaurus Shepherds to do it. And then Nathan LePetz, who I think top-aided one of the challenges this weekend with elves, borrowed that same set of Allosaurus Shepherds in order to do it. And today... Those are the only ones online. Yeah. Today, I think Nathan said he, he like, spent 70 ticks in order to, like, get a hold of a couple so he could play them in some other premiere events. I think he said he spent 70 tickets on one. Oh, and then fuck. like, like that, that, like he, he tweeted like, Hey, I need these shepherds. Like anyone have a line. Then like the first update was like, got one cost 70 ticks. And then like later updated, I found the other two. Uh, Horrific um, stuff. And it's not just that card either. Like the big bad goblin king. Uh, is it Mooksus? Yeah, Moxus. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's there's similar availability issues with that, and then I realized it's a bigger problem than just that. When I tried to borrow Legacy Staple Surly Badger Soar, which was released in the Ikoria Commander cards in April, and I tried to borrow them, and I messaged Card Hoarder about it because I couldn't borrow it. And I'm like, hey, what's up? And Card Hoarder sent me a message back a few minutes later saying like. Yeah, we still don't have enough of those commander cards from April to make them available to the loan program, even though they've been out for a couple of months. We're hoping to release them in a week or two. For what it's worth, when Muxus came out, that was the card I was excited about the most for goblins, and I was talking about it with a few people, and they were like, I don't know, it's six mana, it's just another bad siege gang, and I was like, I don't know, this is a siege gang that actually wins the game once it enters play. And, like, just playing two of those in your Goblin deck and dropping it turn two off a Lackey seems incredible. And then, like, since I've been watching, like, streams and stuff, people are starting to pick it up more. But it was, like, very quiet when it was spoiled. Like, people weren't actually sure. Like, I saw some tweets from people that actually play Goblins and they weren't so sure on it. And then, like, a day later, they're like, okay, this card is nuts. Yeah, I, what, as soon as I saw that card on the spoilers, I, like, retweeted it and was like, holy shit, crank your vial up to six, this is the truth. And, like, Almost all of the responses were like, nah, six man is too much for legacy. I don't think so. But like a turn, like, like you said, like the dream, like the, the turn to stick that off a lackey is effectively GG. Like your opponent has to combo you out that turn. Like Epic Storm might be able to do it, but like against like Miracles, Delver, like <laughs> Loam, like fuck it, they're dead. Uh, and like, even if that isn't the case, like you have Cavern of Souls in your deck, you're playing a, a port Kirk, strategy. Skirt Prospector. Yeah, Skirt Prospector. Like you can crank that vial up to six if that's, you're out. Like that's, it's a totally vial. There's a lot of paths to get there. Goblins is so, like the, the it is the combo aggro control deck of the format. Always has been, always will be. So uh, I, I think Muxus is nice and I'm glad he is getting some play. I would like to dagger fill for a second. Notice how death and taxes can't be combo fill, but goblins can. Yeah, just fucking red creatures are good now. I've, I've abandoned the way of white creatures. <laughs> like, I wanted to play goblins so fucking bad this week on stream. 
since today's uh, Origins, uh, I'm just going to say while we're on the topic of goblins, goblins was the first competitive deck I ever built. Food chain goblins in type 1.5. Powerful stuff. I believe if you go into my uh, like Bosch and Roll MTGO results, you'll find a uh, my fir- my first like legacy big finish on MTGO back when uh, I, whatever like the the ancient predecessor, like the, the 2010 predecessor of the uh, weekly challenges was, I believe I top forward one of those with goblins. So that's out there right, somewhere. We should probably get head back to Phil's life or sort of stealing his mojo. I mean, I've, I, I've said my piece. It's, it's, you know, same as before. Lots of, lots of video games, slight magic frustrations. So let's go over to you, Bryant. How's life on your end? Well, I was supposed to get married on Saturday, and uh, thanks to COVID-19, that did not happen. It was we, we knew months ago that we were going to postpone, but we spent the day together having fun and made some food, made pizza. It was great. It was actually my first time in my adult life making my own pizza. I'm pretty lazy, I guess, and I just have never done it. Um, note to everyone out there, if you've never made pizza like me by the time you're 30, uh, the dough rises so much more than you expect. Uh, we rolled it very thin and it was still ended up being very thick. So did you make your dough or did you buy a, like a package? We bought a package. Okay. Yeah. Like I've made, I've been making pizza for, I am 32 years of age. So probably 22 years I've been making pizzas in various forms. That was like a staple growing up for me. So like I've made the dough from scratch. I've bought like the Trader Joe's like little dough pouch. They have them. They're like a dollar. It's insane if there's a Trader Joe's near you. It's great. It's like fresh dough for a dollar. Uh, sometimes I go to just the grocery store to the bakery section and be like, hey, do you have any uncooked Italian dough I can have? And they'll sell it to you for the same price as a cooked loaf of Italian bread. So you can do it that way. But also, like, the freezer section of any grocery store has, like, frozen Italian loaves that you can thaw out and smush out. So I've done it in many different ways, and, uh, like, it, it's hard to miss. Like, pizza is great. But, yeah, there is a learning curve to, like, rolling it out and, uh, like, getting it flat and how thick you want it, how, how long to cook it, like, what different sauce and topping levels do to your cook times. Like, cooking is great. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> I love talking about cooking. And today's episode has totally pivoted into the cooking episode. Buckle up, folks. We're going to talk olive oil. Yep, and in the first I'm round... Brian Cook, and I will be your chef. And we're going to chop Phil in the first round. Oh no. At least I'll be tasty. So, I, I don't want to hijack your section, Brian, but since we're talking about cooking, I gotta say, uh, I had a couple over this past weekend. Uh, we... Remained on opposite sides of the room. They're the first people I've had to my house in three months. And it was responsible, but I grilled for everyone. And I put these spicy Italian sausages on the on my grill. And then I like just like eyeballed the time and went inside to talk to my friends. And when I walked when I went back outside to check them, I could see from my kitchen window that my covered deck was just full of black smoke. <laughs> and I, I like went outside, like swatting through the smoke, like coughing out, like out everything. And the grill was just like pouring black smoke out from under it. And I threw it open and like flames, like five and a half feet high, were just shooting up. And so immediately I turned off the grill and turned off the propane and the fire did not stop. 
the grill was actually on fire. <laughs> it was insane. It turns out that the uh, the hot oil inside the spicy sausage is uh, a bit of a combustive. So uh, I should not have walked away from those. Question for you yeah. about your grill. Does it have a cover for where the flames come out? Like um, the big grill that I bought, it has like this black triangle thing that you put over yes. where the heat comes out. So, okay. Yeah, it, it has several layers of protection. Nothing is broken. The outside of the grill is pristine, but that mf was literally on fire. I had to like pull out the garden hose to douse it. <laughs> so uh, before we made pizza on Saturday, I decided to play in a vintage challenge and I actually won my third vintage challenge in 30 days with uh, Paradoxical Outcome. It's just like it's like playing vintage TES. I just love it. Mox Opal is a powerful magic card. Um, yeah, I, after we record tonight, I actually plan on recording a deck tech for my vintage list. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in my PO list, you can go to the Epic Storm YouTube channel and check that out. So as far as magic goes, you've also been mucking around with Peer into the Abyss, right? In, in Legacy? I have. I've been doing very well. Alex McKinley wrote an article, and we talked about that on the last episode, but the biggest thing that I've learned with Peer into the Abyss is that it allows you to play the game a lot more conservatively in some matchups. So, for example, Delver Secret Strategies. Before, with a, a Delver and a Dreadhorde Arcanist, they could pressure your life total, which would shut off both Empty the Warren's Adnan and Ad Nauseum. So, think back to, like, 2018 TES. Th- those two were really only your, your, the only avenues you had. 2019 happens. You get Echo of Aeons. Echo of Aeons allows you to once again play more, a little bit more conservatively. But when you cast it, you really need to be protected by Veil or Defense Grid. And Veil doesn't stop like Surgical Extraction or, you know, other things like that. So Defense Grid is what you want, but, you know, it being symmetrical hurts. Well, Pierce asymmetrical and you can cast it from two life. So the first day I played with it, I actually cast it from two, drew 22 cards and killed my opponent. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm really happy with the card. I haven't really been missing Infernal Tutor yet. I've noticed my win percentage has gone up quite a bit with Peer. It's weird because I feel like a lot of my leagues, I'm either going 5-0 or 2-3. It's pretty hot and cold at the moment. But Yeah, I'll, I'll co-sign your point there. I, I recorded a league with uh, Ken and Stompy, a list that uh, Phil linked me to. The league did not go well, but I played against Tess in it, and uh, you like see me on video where I, I like have them at a pretty low life total. They're dead on board. And I'm, I'm just like, I'm, they have like no cards left in hand. And I'm just like, they, they put burning wish on the stack. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure what they can get here. That like makes us lose like echo. Like we'll, we'll get a fresh seven. Like maybe we'll find a force or whatever. And they just got peer and I died immediately. And it was like, Oh yeah, that card was printed this week. That's a serious magic card. I think it's the closest thing that the Epic Storm has to a deterministic kill. Because if you draw 25 cards or whatever the number is, like, your opponent's going to be murdered. Yeah, like, I, as a thought experiment, I was like, can they miss? Like, is it possible? And I, I guess, like, if they had already made their land drop, if they just drew every spell that costs... Are there even, like, 22 spells that cost one or more in the deck? Like, are you guaranteed to hit a zero-cost mana source in 22 cards? 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't know I either. Do know, <laughs> was, I was watching Anurag stream um, Friday, and he boarded out like five of the zero mana artifacts, like all the moxes, and then uh, decided not to cast Peer and went to Tendrils. The, uh, I thought he should have Peered to play around uh, Veil of Summer, but he decided to just Tendrils. And then he drew 23 cards. And because he boarded out all the zeros, which honestly I didn't realize because I was like half watching, uh, he didn't draw zero on those 23, but he also boarded five out. Was this the uh, same stream that resulted in the when Bryant Cook just tells you to Tendrils clip? Yeah, so Friday, uh, this actually brings up one of my next sections, is Arena for Magic, or um, I can't even talk today. The Mac version of Arena came out, and I was, like, learning how to Arena while watching Anurag stream. So I was, like, playing my match, and Arena moves very quickly. Like, if you're not being active, they're like, you're about to lose the game constantly. So I'm, like, watching Anurag stream and watching him punt, and I was like, what? wait, he has Lethal Storm and mana. Why isn't he just getting tendrils? And then neither Anthony nor Anurag bothered to think about my comment and just did it. And for anyone who hasn't seen the clip, there is a food token sitting in play. <laughs> and it just so happens that the food provides just enough life to uh, keep his opponent alive. He still won. That's all that matters. Scoreboard. So the line was correct. Yeah, Arena's really fun, but I don't like the fact that you have to like grind daily quests in order to get coins to enter drafts if you don't want to buy gems. Like, it just seems like a phone game, like a, what's that game old people play on their phone? Candy Crush. Yeah, like, you have to buy, pay for it in order, I don't, I just, well, I'm a big fan. So, I, I will step up here in this part of the conversation, because I've been playing a lot of Arena lately, because uh, I've played, like, the, the Grand Prix replacement, whatever that was, a couple weeks ago, and then I played uh, the PT two weeks ago, and then I'm testing for the PT final at the end of July right now. So I've been playing an ass ton of Arena, and I actually love the grind. Uh, like, so compare it to Magic Online. Like, if you want to play Magic on Arena, you can grind daily quests and eventually build a deck, and you can draft basically infinitely. Like the first uh, fifteen hundred gems or ten thousand gold you get, you can just play forever because you you have to go like four and three to get your money back in a draft. It's easy money. But like you do have to put in the hours compared to Magic Online, where you download the client and you enter it, and it's like, all right, now what do I do? You spend money. There is no way around it. Like it's the only thing. So I, I like that the uh, you know free to play, pay to win option exists uh, for for folks uh, like my brother who uh, has at least known about Magic, played with me a little bit when we were little, but like mostly fell out of the game. Like, he'll, like, text me asking about, like, draft pick orders in M21 now. And I'm like, what the hell? Why are you playing Magic? You don't do this. And he's like, oh, yeah, Arena just makes it so easy. Like, the people like that, like, I, I really like the Arena experience. That said, uh, I have a real hard problem dialing in on it the way I do in paper and in Magic Online. Like, uh, the like practice how you play, you know, like, is the idiom for, like, every sport, every game. and I practice Arena with, like, Netflix on in the background. I'm probably also playing, like, Puzzle Quest on my phone in the other hand, and I'm just, like, clicking through a draft on, like, speedrun mode. And then, like, when I played in the, the PT online, I made some dumbass plays where, like, I 
like plays that I, given all the same information, I think I would have made completely differently in paper if I was just holding a physical object dialing me into it. So that that's my issue with Arena, but that that's a me problem, like not necessarily an Arena problem. I actually love the gameplay. Like when you're playing games, everything's so fast and quick, and I it's actually a lot of fun. Uh, I've also now witnessed the Earl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he so sucks I it right in. That, but I do, I do think that it's, it's almost bad. So I'm someone that's good enough where in paper I'm not going to miss triggers. Arena, your triggers just happen, and I feel like people that aren't very good at magic, it's actually like not benefiting them because they won't ever learn how triggers work. They're just like, well, on Arena it all happens. Uh, so I think like if you're someone coming to the game learning from Arena, it's going to be very difficult playing paper. Yes, they they've done a very good job boiling the Magic the Gathering experience down to the simplest possible version while maintaining the Magic the Gathering experience. Uh, and and that does hurt. Like if you come straight off Arena and show up it with paper cards, like it's gonna there's gonna be a steep curve getting accustomed to that. Um, just for your own information, in the settings tab, you can turn off auto stacking triggers. So like a window like Moto will pop up and you can click them to the order you want them to happen in. So I made sure to do that before the PT. Okay. Because you do occasionally uh, get punished by the, the auto stacker. The last thing I wanted to talk about in my section before we can head over to you is I made a Twitter post Sunday night. I spent seven hours updating uh, the epicsforum.com so that I had all of uh, the 10.2 information, which is the list with Peer into the Abyss. So I wanted everyone to be able to know, like, hey, there's a new cyborg guide up. There's an explanation for why you're cyborging like this. Here's the deck list. There's lists that you can import into Moto so you just have it already. Uh, there's a printable PDF deck list, all that good stuff. So I spent seven hours writing all this and making it all happen. Posted it to Twitter, and the first comment is just, please make more Modern Storm content. I fucking lost it. I, I like I didn't post anything rude on Twitter, but I was fuming for like five minutes. Just just like why would you say that? Like, I don't know. It's just like really frustrating. I'm still getting a little bit mad thinking about it now, but like not everyone is ungrateful, and I don't think this person meant to be ungrateful. They're just someone that likes modern more. But a lot of people don't understand how much time it goes into making magic content, and to just say something like that's like kinda rude. Yeah. Yeah, the, I, I, I have a pretty thick skin, just, uh, I mean, I deal with problematic behavior for a living. Like, <laughs> I, I have to. And, but occasionally I get a YouTube comment, and it's not even the mean ones. Like, the mean ones are like, like the ones that are like, you stupid donkey, why don't you learn math? You, you missequence this one thing at hour, hour 1.9 or whatever. It's just like, Oh yeah, you're right. I did. My bad. I was also running a uh, recording thing and narrating all my games and like making sure all the, the tech behind the scenes was working. Oops, you got me. But like the ones that are like completely off topic, just like like I, I like I'll do like a week where I post like a modern video a day, and then like on Thursday someone's like record some legacy. It's like God damn it! <laughs> I've put like twenty hours into this. YouTube channel this week. There's 20 hours of brand new content. Just wait two weeks. I'll have some legacy or whatever. <laughs> I, I record what I'm playing. But yeah, it, it's those are the worst. It's like, why don't you record some legacy, buddy? 
Yeah. Guy. But also, like, Modern Storm kind of sucks. Like, Modern 1, I don't think is a very good format right now. And I play a lot of different formats. And it's nothing against Modern. I just don't think it's exactly the healthiest format at the moment. But also, Burn is one of the best decks. And Burn kicks the shit out of Blue Red Storm. Like, it's not even close. It's like, you're under 30%. So, like, why would I invest time into this format where the deck I enjoy isn't very good? And the deck itself isn't very good. I don't know. I feel that. <laughs> um, anyway, Brian, let's go on to your life. Why don't you tell us about Borderlands and maybe some other stuff? <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start by saying that uh, on Twitter right now, depending on when you're listening to this episode, until July 6th, I'm doing a uh, giveaway to benefit uh, Black Lives Matter and trans rights stuff. Uh, basically, all you have to do is send me a screenshot of a receipt that you donated $10 or more to any organization that benefits black or trans people. And I'll put you into the raffle. I'm giving away an expedition windswept teeth. So uh, go do that <laughs> at Bosch and roll B O S H letter N R O L L. Uh, that that's live. Go check it out. If you like supporting things and gambling. Uh, so moving on to my actual life. Uh, so I, the, Heating and air conditioning in my house has been on a strange adventure. Uh, I, I may have mentioned some amount of this at some point, but when I bought the house, there was no heating or air conditioning to the bedrooms on the top floor. And I called the the, the seller who was like, uh, get fucked. That's your house now. It's not my problem. And then I sent him a court summons that was like, hey, buddy, you lied on your seller's disclosures. It is your problem. And then... He settled by having his idiot, who fucked it up in the first place, come and install a new system. Well, two years later, that idiot has been back probably between six and ten times trying to fix the new system he put in because he didn't can't do it right and he's incompetent. And I called someone else, like, out of pocket, like, it was under warranty, quote-unquote, whatever that means, from someone who can't do anything right. Uh, I called someone else to actually get a diagnostic to fix this system for good. And $2,000 later, uh, someone else re reinstalled my HVAC stuff today. And there is cool air blowing through my bedroom. And I'm very happy about that. But I'm very salty about this whole adventure with this idiot. So uh, I, I left a... I Against my better judgment, I left a bad review on his business website. And the reason it's against my better judgment is because he lives like four doors down from me and knows where I live and drives past my house every day. And he's kind of a crazy idiot. So we'll see if that causes any problems in my community. But for now, I have cool air. So uh, ups and downs on that one. Uh, I have, in much happier news, I have a uh, vacation planned, which sounds dangerous in this world but my uncle has a house on a lake that nobody lives in in south carolina and it's been empty for this whole quarantine so we can drive down there uh probably like a gas and lunch stop and then get there and other than stopping for gas uh, we can remain socially distant and then be somewhere else for a little while and i'm really looking forward to that so that have you had to get gas since quarantine started? I have gotten gas. So I, I've gotten gas one time. And that's because, uh, like, last month I visited my parents. They live 
uh, like three, two and a half hours away, and we had all been quarantined for a while, and uh, we all thought it was safe to visit them. I I literally still had their Christmas presents because quarantine, like I was in Europe over actual Christmas, and like we had plans to see each other, and then quarantine happened, and like I, I literally delivered their Christmas presents in June to them, and. So I, I had to get gas because I made that trip, but that's the only reason. I did it once, and I was wearing gloves and a mask, and people around me were looking at me like I was crazy. And I, I don't know, like, what the deal is. Like, are you not supposed to wear gloves when you, like, think of all the people that have touched that gas handle. And I, and I maybe I'm just, like, being a little bit of a germaphobe or whatever, but I was just like, New York State doesn't have people that pump your gas like Jersey. But I was like, now would be the time if, like... <laughs> If that existed, I would gladly tip someone to not have to touch that gross handle. Yeah, uh, I I know Sheets, uh, which is a regional gas station chain for our uh, foreign abroad listeners. Uh, Sheets has like disposable gloves at every pump, and that's been that was super nice. Like, like because I said I've only gotten gas once in the past three months, and when I pulled into the gas station, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna have to touch this thing that so many people have touched. But then there was just a big box of disposable gloves for me. It was so nice. I love sheets. Better than Wawa. So, oh, I was going to ask you, do you have a stance on sheets versus uh, Wawa? So Wawa has better subs, but sheets has better everything else. Like facilities, uh, prices, uh, like everything else they carry. They're, they're made fresh food. Everything is better except subs. Wawa does do subs better. So I've been to both. I think they're both fine. You're not going to like my answer here, but... I think that it is kind of silly that people take such strong stances and hatred over one another over gas station food. It's like, no, my gas station food is better than your gas station food. I will cut you if you don't back down. Yeah, I'm not about to cut anyone, though. If a Sheets and Wawa were right next to each other, I would go to the Sheets. Though I'm certainly not like when I'm on the road, like, oh, no, we're in Wawa country. I'd rather die. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be hungry on the drive home. I, I certainly don't actually care. Like I grew up in New Jersey. Like I'm from Wawaville, but I have uh, acclimated. I've gone gone local uh, and embraced the sheets. Back when SCGs used to be uh, right next to the uh, read is it Reading Reading Terminal Market? Yeah, there's a Reading. Uh, there was a Wawa not too far from there, and that was the first Wawa I ever went to. The place was like run down. The ceiling was literally coming down from the top. It was just like a, it was like a hole in the wall. And I was like, why are people so crazy about this place? It seems like any other like poorly run convenience store I've ever been to. And like, I've I've since then gone to nicer ones, but at the time I was just like, I don't get this. No, that Wawa sucks. And also, was it the middle of the night? Why would you walk past the Reading Terminal Market and go to a Wawa? Yeah, that's what I don't understand. That place is I wanted soda. I'm I'm an addict. I drink a lot of soda. And Reading Terminal Market, like, I guess you could go in there for soda, but isn't it just easier to go to the convenience store? And the, I mean, the market is literally closer than the Wawa. So, uh, and like every stall at a food market has a soft drink cooler. Like, I I don't know what your level of ease is. Like, how are we defining easy? I don't I just didn't want to walk around with a cup and a straw. Like, I, I like having bottles. That was my thing. Uh, they have like the, the coolers, like the the fridge like you can open it up and grab a 20 ounce like they have that too if we're ever out of quarantine and then i ever go to another star <laughs> city that happens to be at a reading terminal market 
or I'm sorry, Philly, where that location is, I will go to the Reading Terminal Market for my sodas. Well, that's that's never going to happen because uh, all of the magic organizers realize that the uh, casino in uh, Valley Forge is, or not Valley Forge, uh, King of Prussia, maybe. That I think, place is miserable. Yeah, well, that place is much cheaper to run events. There's free parking, uh, cheaper hotels. Like, it, it is a better experience on a lot of metrics the only one you're losing is the the market so that events will never be held there again sorry to say i will say this the first time i ever went to pennsylvania or philly i should say for an event i was so upset because like at the time i was like freshly out of college and i didn't make a whole lot of money i like park at the hotel and they're like okay parking is 26 dollars a night i'm like oh that's steep and then i was like how much are the garages around here and they're like 20 dollars a night and i was like ah i guess i'm already here i'll pay the six bucks that doesn't account for like the Philly parking tax, which was like 13%. Like by the time I left that weekend, I spent like $80 in parking. Yeah, it's completely outrageous. Uh, I dated when I was in college, I dated a girl for a while who went to Temple, which is two train stops away from the Reading Market. Like the the SEPTA train stops in the Reading Terminal. Like that's why it's called the Terminal, because the train stops there. And uh, I used to just park for free on the street outside that girl's apartment. Like even years after we stopped dating and she stopped living there, I, I just knew that street was there. So <laughs> I just parked outside that apartment and took the train. It, it was like two bucks to get from the, the car to the, the Reading Market. So that was my strat in Philly for years. All right, Brian, anything else on the real life front before we uh, dive into the rest? Uh, I, I've just been playing tons of Hearthstone Battlegrounds. Uh, a new patch came out, and uh, they added a whole new class of minions to the game. You can now be pirates. And the game only supports uh, five minion types at a time, and now there are six. So the it, it just like randomly excludes one of the classes every time you go in, which is like another level. Uh, it, it keeps the game from getting solved because like you go in and it's like, okay, there's no demons this round. What does that mean for my composition? So uh, th- there's a lot of new levels. I have hemorrhaged rating points trying to figure it out. So, but but I'm having fun. I, I do love that game. That's all I got. All right, then let's dive into feedback. Um, let's take a look at the comments that we got. Oh, wait, there weren't none. Perfect episode then, right? Seems yep, like perfect it. episode. Uh, we, we we know historically that the uh, preview episodes are not the most exciting because every content creator in Magic is doing the same thing that same week. And we're not mad that there were no comments. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's good. So I, I wanted to talk about one thing. I've looked at a, a number of goblins lists over the last, like, uh, a couple weeks and at first they started off on uh, four boga harbinger and like two kikis and now they're at the point where like they're playing like one harbinger to get with their goblin matron so that way you can like matron for harbinger play harbinger and win uh but like makes your mana lines like much slower and it's like i've talked to people they're like yeah i'm not even sure if i want to play this combo anymore it doesn't seem worth it like i just don't get it and it's not like one specific person has said this to me it's like a number of people and I mean no offense to the people that work on goblins, so partially sorry to fail here, but goblins isn't, like, that great of a deck. Like, it's solid. Don't get me wrong. It's, like, a fine deck. But, like, Muxus does improve it, which is true. 
but like where's goblins been the last 10 years it's been like a lower tier two deck probably maybe even tier three and like you're getting the tools to improve it and people just aren't building around them properly they're like yeah i guess i'll play one of this and one of that like no slot four of those bad boys in there and try something different like maybe if you ran four bogarts and a couple kikis and then like got more natural wins you'd be able to do more but it just seems like people aren't taking advantage of these new tools like they're trying to be a little too conservative with the way that they're building in my opinion yeah and that's uh kind of the conversation we had about the snoop last week where uh it was like does goblins put like a skinny little combo package into their existing shell or do they make a new goblin combo deck and where do where do things end up so that that is the question that these folks seem less uh adventurous to answer than you would like them to be yeah i just think that like so think of it a lot like splinter twin where like you constantly have to respect the combo and if you're running one of each piece and your opponent knows that they no longer have to respect you if you're running four they have to play that game entirely different especially with your aether vials because like your aether vial becomes a lot more scary if it's left on two and if you're playing a lackey turn one and it, and it dies, now your snoop's going to live and you're way more likely to kill them on turn three. There's just like a lot more going on. There's a lot more tension in the game. And if I'm on the opposite side of the table, I want less tension. Yeah. And I, I guess like, do you lose tension in the other direction? Because like, if you've got like four snoops, four kiki jikis, four harbingers, and it's just like, if this lackey connects, do I care? Like, do I just save my Swords of Plowshares for the Snoop when it drops? Like, like is there... Drop that Muxus! Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> can, like, is there room for Muxus in a deck with these, like, 12 combo pieces? So th- that's, a, like, a different kind of tension. Like, pure Goblin combo versus... Yeah, I mean, I would still yeah. be playing Muxus and, like, some of the mid-range stuff, but I have a little bit of a different philosophy in how I would build. I think stuff like Goblin Warchief it might not be necessary anymore. And I was talking about it with a couple of people and they strongly disagreed and they felt like Warchief should never leave. But it's just like, if you told me 10 years ago today that I would no longer be playing Infernal Tutor, I would have laughed at you and dismissed anything you said. But like sometimes things change and like if you're trying to be a Goblin combo deck, do you really need Goblin Warchief? Especially when like your combo doesn't actually get much cheaper. Um, I'd still want like Ringleaders and stuff to rebuild, but I don't think you need to be playing for Matron. Like I think that you can just swap those with Bogarts. Uh, from a slightly different axis, um, in thinking about goblins, I've been thinking about the same thing that I've been thinking about with every deck that I play, and that's Chromebox. Like, at what point do we dump a little bit of extra mana acceleration into goblins because your late game already recoups that so well? Like, at what point do you start trying a couple of Chromebox or Lotus Petal, and uh, what's the two-mana guy that has the goblin lackey effect? Uh, instigator yeah war and instigator like at, at what point do you go more all in on uh muxus and like have additional ways to get that into play uh, i've been thinking yeah, about that like a lot goblin stompy yeah that I, I i trust phil to figure out the stompy version of every deck <laughs> and but i do yeah, goblin stompy sounds sweet too like forget us let me get those mod catchers oh god uh, I actually had a mail day today. My set of Japanese mod catchers arrived. I I bought them as soon as I saw Muxus on, on, on the previews. I like how Phil is joining the Eternal Glory podcast, and four months later he can't get enough Chrome mocks. Cards so, so good. Uh, I think that just has says something about my influence. 
Or or that Chrome Ox is a hell of a card. I learned that card is like seventy bucks recently. Like that's a lot of money. Like I I I tend to freeze the price of a card in my head at whatever I bought it at, and I'm pretty sure my Chrome Moxes I got when they were in standard. So the seventy dollar price tag is just like oh baby. When they spiked, I had twelve of them on the EpicStorm.com. I posted saying that I had them. And I was also not going to spike the price. I said, hey, if you want these, you can get them for what they're at currently. They're $48. They were at the time. They were 48 They've like steadily gone up to like 50 And then there was a spike up to like 72 74 But I said like, hey, please only buy these if you're planning on casting them with Rite of Flames. And they sold like by a couple, like two here, three there, whatever. But they all eventually sold. Nice. Uh, doing your part to get more test decks in the world. Hopefully. Not just people specking. That would be unfortunate. I don't think a speculator would buy two or three. They would have just wiped you out. So I think you're safe. That's probably true. Those MTG finance people. Alright, so do we want to get to this week's real conversation? So uh, what we want to do uh, is talk about our magic origins. Like, not the set, but our own personal stories uh, we're, we're going to focus on level ups. Like we're going to do some backstory. Like, uh, this is when I learned to play. This is when I found tournaments. This is when I found legacy. And then, then we're going to get into like, what made us better? Like why, why, what, why are we now in a spot where we feel like we can talk on a podcast and have something to say versus just like be someone else or like, why are we, why do we have results? Why are we here? So like something happened along the way from that like little kid who opened a, opened a pack of Tempest or whatever. So we're going to talk about that journey. Well, Brian, why don't you start us off? All right. Uh, am I the oldest here? Uh, a 1996 Magic start date? Did I? Did either of you start earlier? Oh, you beat that? me. You beat me. All right. All right. I, I am the oldest wizard in the group. Uh, I think both by age, but not by much. But uh, Matt, wizard-wise, I started in the summer of 1996. Uh, there was a, a summer camp that I went to every year as a kid, and we got to pick electives. Uh, like I usually picked like archery and swimming, but one one session just randomly offered Magic the Card Game, was what the session was called. And I was like, that sounds neat. Uh, I'll get in on that. Or, or it sounds like it's inside. It sounds like it's under the pavilion. Like, I don't want to be in the sun. And the session was capped, but I talked to the counselor who was running it, and he was just like, uh, it's capped, but I'll hook you up. And he just gave me like a fistful of cards from like 4th uh, edition, so like 3rd and 4th edition, just like a pile of random cards that he had. And I was able to cobble together enough to uh, play with the other kids like uh, during downtime and stuff. And then I uh, learned that two of my cousins also played Magic and then got back to school in the fall. And basically my whole friend group also just independently had discovered magic at some point or another. I was in the uh, before and after school program because my parents worked. So they would just like drop me off at school at like 7 a.m. and pick me up at 5 p.m. So I had a lot of free time with these with these same like three dudes, uh, Pete, Jesse and David. Not that it matters what their names are, but all three of them independently also discovered magic on their own. And then I came back to the the school program in the fall and was like, Hey, look what I got. And they're like, Oh, we have those two. 
and then a play group was born. To, to pause you for a second, so what you're saying is a camp counselor got you hooked on cardboard crack? Uh, yes, that did happen. <laughs> That's the true story of my life. Uh, also, like if I so back then, let's put it a little bit into perspective. 1996, the game's three years old. There was moms like boycotting Magic the Gathering because it was like a satanic card game. And this guy at a summer camp was like, yes, let me teach these kids Satan cards. So funny story, uh, true story. My my mom, like at the end of that camp session, there was like uh, a camp night where like you know, the parents came and like all of the, the groups at the camp put on some sort of like dance number or whatever, like to entertain the parents. And at like parents night, I was sitting with other kids, just like looking at magic cards. We weren't even playing. We were just like holding them. And my mom was like, what is this? And one of the older guys, like he was still a kid, but he was older and he was actually in the the magic elective he got in. He was like, like, he was like, oh, they're magic cards. They do this and this and this, and they're different colors, but we don't have any black cards because some of them have bad words on them. That was like a real thing that he told my mom. And my mom was like, oh, well, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) So... I like uh, how you described it, like, you went to the camp that Heavyweights is at, and they're like, yeah, you do, like, a dance at the end while the parents come? Well, I mean, that is the summer camp experience. I don't know if you ever went to summer camp, but, like, some, like, every, it was the group, there were a bunch of different groups, like, different ages, different types of camp. There's like, a sports camp and, like, a you know, more leisurely camp and, like, different ages and whatever. And at the end, there was just, like, a big, like, show night where each of the groups put together, like, a lip sync song and dance for from like some pop song or whatever, or like uh, put it together some little skit or like some play. And that was, that was just like part of the camp. Did you have like a poor man's uh, Christopher Farley push you on a go-kart that didn't work? <laughs> no, we, we didn't have all that. Unfortunately. Uh, I, I remember like two of, two of our shows, like in two separate sessions, one, we sang Barbara, Barbara Ann. And one we sang Great Balls of Fire, like as a group. Like those were the two songs that I remember being part of. And I also remember refusing to be part of some other like stupid thing. Like one 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 session we were like supposed to be flowers, like all of the, the kids like curled up in a little ball on the ground and it's like and like one of the counselors was like reading in like a like fake, like whimsical voice, like the seeds they grow. And then we were supposed to like uncurl our arms and like the se- the flowers look for the sun and like we were supposed to reach up towards the sky and like slowly uncurl into flowers and I just refused to be part of that as a child I hated it so much. So uh, to bring this back to magic for a second, I'm gonna <laughs> you got uh, me off it. Yeah, it's my own fault. All right, but, bring, it, bring us back. Uh, my introduction to magic was actually pretty similar to yours, where. There was, like, friends that I knew from school that were also, like, fairly nerdy, and I think I was in, like, 6th or 7th grade, and they are like, hey, we have, like, an after-school club where we're going to play this card game. Do you want to join? I was like, yeah, I don't know. They're like, it's like Dungeons & Dragons, sort of, and, like, I had played Dungeons & Dragons twice before, and I was like, I guess I'll go, and I played, and there's just this kid that was, like, a uh, grade older than us, and he was just so cocky and confident. I was like, oh, I don't like this kid. I want to beat him. So it was, like, my mission for, like that school year to beat him but he had like old cards so he had icy manipulators and royal assassins and ice flows and like cards that were just way better out of than what i was cracking out of my like seventh edition and invasion boosters um but i eventually got there i mean i I don't know if i ever beat that kid but 
I think now I'm probably better, or so I hope. <laughs> I'm sure you'd beat him now. You'd have Icy Manipulator and Royal Assassin, and you're like, Mox over Dark Ritual. <laughs> Caspier to the Abyss, he's a girl with set from. You're like, oh, you lose half your life? That sucks, idiot. Attack you with my Hypnotic Specter. Oh, man. Wow, you Speaking might lose that. card's good. Hypnotic Specter, when I started playing Magic, everybody had to have their set. And they're like, oh, do you have any like, non-white border Hypnotic Specters? Like, what do you think those are worth? And, like, trading back in the day was, like, way more of a big deal than it. Like, nobody wants to trade anymore. We're back 15 years ago. Everybody was, like, trying to binder trade and level up on small increments and stuff. Yeah, the internet was barely, like, functional. You certainly didn't have the robust magic economy we have now. In trading, like, I remember, uh, this is a little bit later, but I opened up a Simic Sky Swallower. And the way that it worked is, like, you would go home, you'd look it up on eBay, and then you'd have to remember that price. And, like, you'd have to, like, check prices again, uh, like, throughout time. And, like, that's how you traded. You were just constantly looking on eBay to see what stuff sold for. And if you were ever wrong, you got screwed. Yeah, at the uh, after-school program, I remember there was a kid one year older than me and my friends. And he had a subscription to Inquest or Scry, like, whatever the magazine was at the time. Maybe both. And that had, like, the monthly price guide published in the back. And... He would just shark us with that thing. Like he wouldn't let us see it until after the trade was done, and then he'd make sure we saw it. Like I think I traded, I think I traded like Curse Scroll as like a throw-in in in some trade, and I got like I, I was probably trading for like craw worms and shit, like like big dumb creatures. There's probably like a Leviathan involved, and he like just like got my Curse Scroll, which was a twenty dollar bill at the time as a throw-in. So the first trade I remember making, and it's not the first trade that I did, it's just the first one that I remember, I really wanted a Bayou because I was playing like a, a, a it was like, I had been playing Suicide Black with like Nankuko Shades and stuff, and I decided I wanted to play Green because I wanted to play Pernicious Deed. So I wanted a Bayou, and at the time, the game store I went to sold them for $9, which was like more than what people thought they were worth. And I had a Silvos, which was fairly new at the time. And the store sold those for $10. And the guy's like, yeah, but you can get those out of packs. You can't get this out of a pack. This is like one of the oldest cards in the game. So the guy like took like 12 of my rares. He was like, yeah, I think this makes it fine. And somebody came up and they're like, haven't you like ripped him off enough? And they like pulled two of my rares back. And they're like, here, you're still doubling your money. And the guy's like, I don't think this is worth it now. I'm going to keep my card. And then like he like convinced me to put the two other rares back in. Wow. It, it was It was the Wild West back then. So, Phil, what was your introduction to Magic like? The, the short version of the beginning is that I learned from my kid neighbor over the summer between my junior and senior year. And, like, he looked up to me a lot. Like, I taught him to play, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon cards and stuff, like, when I was babysitting him as he was growing up. And I went home from college, and he was like, yeah, I got this new game. Come play with me. And, and so I did. And in passing, I mentioned it to my college roommate that I learned to play. And he's like, holy crap, I used to play that at Boy Scouts. I still have my cards from back in the day. And so he brings in these, like, Kamigawa-era starter decks. And, like, I, I learned to play Magic with those. And I think I was playing for, like, two weeks and having fun. And then I realized that one of my other friends worked at a game store. And I mentioned to him that I played Magic. And I get this phone call from him randomly. And it's like, hey... 
do you want magic cards? And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of interested. And he's like, okay, cool. We just bought this giant collection and we got everything that we want out of it. I, it, I will give you a literal car full of magic cards for $40. So I got this collection that filled up my Grand Prix. Like, I struggled to get myself and one person with me into the car, and just, like, everything was full of magic cards. And so I spent the next few months just, like, building decks with, like, mostly commons and uncommons from throughout Magic's history. And... Like, that's how I learned to play, just by, like, brewing these ridiculous de decks and, then, like, bashing them against my roommate and a couple other people that went in on uh, this collection with me. That's I great. like the idea that, like, one of your friends was like, let's play Kamigawa Precons. And they probably had the one with Umajalja in it, and you had, like, the bad samurai one, and they just, like, constantly crushed you with Umajalja without you knowing. Oh, man, I, I have fond memories of that stuff. Uh, it was, like... Like, Zuberas and, uh, like, Spirits and... The red one had, like, both brothers in it. I forget what they're called, but it's like, they if you have them both in play, they each get, like, plus two. Yeah, it, that card was sweet. I, I think it's Yamazaki. The brothers Yamazaki. Yamazaki. Yeah, because, like, it, it is a card with the same name. It is a legendary creature with the same name, but there's two different arts. And you can control exactly two of them, and... It, the legend rule doesn't apply as long as you have exactly two, and they, they buff each other, which is pretty cool. It was a, like one of the first times they really wiggled around with the legend rule. I'm into that. Yeah, so this was right before Scars released, and so like I bought my own pre-con deck. I, I bought like an old one from back in the day, and I, I bought my first card. I will never forget. I bought four copies of Vampire Nighthawk. And I was like, holy shit, these things are overpowered as hell. How does it get so many of these keywords? Um, I was... Well, when Vampire Nighthawk came out, people played it in Legacy. Like, Eva Green was a deck. And people were like, yeah, why aren't you playing four Nighthawks? And then, like, Gatekeeper Malker came out. They're like, oh, well, you need four of this for that deck, too. Like, it used to be reasonable to play in commons in your deck. Yeah, those those cards were my jam when I, when I first started, like... My first standard deck that I made was Mono Black Control with like Gatekeepers and Nighthawks and Phyrexian Obliterator came a little bit later, but like that was a super cool addition to it. Lash Rive was a big pickup as well. It was a, it was a fun time. So weirdly enough, I have a ton of experience playing against exactly that deck. Uh, I would... I this is about the time I was studying abroad in England, and one of the local guys, his name was Mr. X. Like, that was literally what he went by. He has a real name, but I, I prefer not to utter it. Like, everyone just called him Mr. X or X. And he he was on a quest to own a playset of black. Like, he didn't care about any other color. Uh, if he opened a card worth money, he would trade it for a black card of comparable value. And he just wanted a playset of black. Because he didn't need anything else. And I played against a lot of Gatekeeper of Malakir at FNM when I was living in England. Every time you got paired against Mr. X, you knew it was coming. Is Black Lotus a black card? It, 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 I, I hope he has four of those. Like, I'm rooting for him. Alright, so Brian, what was your first uh, like level up? Because we're not just talking about origins; we're talking about like leveling up and getting better. Like, what was the first thing that you can think of that really helped you improve? So I love telling this story 
this this was a very quick level up. Uh, one of my cousins who played Magic uh, that I mentioned earlier, his name's Jeffrey. He's like five or six years older than me. And so he was in high school when I was uh, a kid getting into Magic. And he's also just really smart. He's like, uh, has like some rare PhD. He's like the foremost expert on some niche science right now. Like he, he's brilliant. And we were playing a game uh, one of my first real games where like I was actually sitting with someone who really knew the rules and uh, he was teaching me and he made an attack with this like hill giant sized creature. It might have been literally hill giant. And I had two two twos and I went to chump block and he was like, if you block with both, you get to kill my guy and you were going to lose your two two anyway. Like it's all upside. And I was like, oh, that's really smart. So I double block and he goes, bam, giant. <laughs> <laughs> So in that like one second, uh, I learned two lessons, like both uh, double blocking is, is, is a good way to trade up, like how to get a resource advantage. And I learned about Jedi mind tricks, like at the same time, like in that one formative second. And like, uh, this is going to be a recurring theme in my journey, but like, getting blown out like that, I wasn't like, oh, that's cheesy, you jerk. I was like, okay, that was sweet. I can't wait to do that to someone. Like, sign me up. Like, getting getting just, like, hooked and blown out like that made me love magic more. So that was my first level up. Phil, how about you? As far as, like, the first one goes, I feel like life total as a resource is one of those ones that is, like, one of the biggest level-ups that a lot of Magic players get. Um, and, like, since I was messing around with mono-black cards, I learned that relatively quickly, although I didn't really realize that I had learned it until a bit later on. Yeah, that's Black's color part. Yeah, like, playing around with cards like Sign-In Blood, and there was this, like, bat in the starter deck that I got that you could, like, pay a black mana and some life to increase its attack power. Like, did you ever think Sign and Blood was meant to target your opponent? Like, was... Or did you get it immediately? Uh, no. That's I, I did not get that immediately. Yeah, yeah, that... That's a sweet sweet nuance of that card that uh, a like, experienced player doesn't even think about. Yeah, and, and now that I know that sort of thing, when I play other games, I realize that sort of stuff immediately. And it's like, you know, target card, and it's like, oh, but it doesn't have to be mine. Um, this comes up a lot in the game Monster Train that I'm playing now, where there are these cards that are, like, very obviously meant to target your own units, but there's these weird corner case scenarios where you target something else for just huge benefits. Um, yeah, but, like, learning that life total is a resource and learning how to play with that and, like, getting a better conception of, like, when do I need to chump block? When can I just take this damage? Um, that was really important for me. And by extension, learning that I don't always have to cast my cards every turn, that was a big one as well. Because, like, conceptually, early on when I was playing Magic, you know, I thought, if I don't use my mana this turn, I'm wasting mana and I'm falling further behind. But there's times where you need to save that mana for later, or you need to save that card for a little bit later. And learning that lesson was very important to my success with death and taxes. 
mostly due to like how dumb Flicker Wisp is as a card. Yeah, Flicker Wisp is not a three drop. So my uh, first level up is a little bit different. So I went to this game store that was in Syracuse, New York called Altered States. And I probably went there for like two years. My parents would drop me off. I would go choo-choo every single week. I was like the king of choo-choos and they picked me up. And I, and I never really feel like I got better. Like I was by far the youngest kid that played because I started going there when I was like 11 or 12. And by the time I was 14, I just didn't really improve. But I, like I was their, you know, their $5 contributor to the prize pool for the older kids that like to win. And I was like pretty nice. And a couple of the older kids began to feel honestly, I think they just felt bad for me because they were all like 16 to 18. And they're like, this kid doesn't win. And they were like, should we invite him to the source, which was a Magic the Gathering legacy site that was like relatively unknown at the time. Uh, one of the guys that made the sources from Syracuse, but there's also like a couple of other people. They were like an offspring from the Manadrain. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Do you think he's like good enough? We only invite good people there. And they're like, well, he needs to get better. And like, this is a way for him to get better. And like, I sat there as they argued over it. And, like, there's a couple guys who were like, no, absolutely not. Like, we don't need scrubs in our uh, forum. And, like, back then, people used to call each other scrubs all the time or, like, you're bad at this game. And, like, they were actively mean about it. Oh, it was toxic as fuck. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And uh, after a while, this one guy was just like, look, either you're going to invite him or else I'm just going to quit posting. And so they let me in. And I'm honestly embarrassed about this because like, a lot of my early posts on the source are still there. And I'm... I should probably go scrub it at some point. But, uh, <laughs> go look at them now before he deletes them. Listeners, go, go I mean, there's a it. ton of embarrassing stuff on there. Oh, God, mine um, too. <laughs> but, so they finally let me in, and that was the first thing that really made me improve. Because I had played, like, four or five different decks at that time, but I never really got any better. I was sort of just, like, playing Magic. And the thing that I learned is, like, access to information is an advantage. Like, if you can read things, you have an advantage over people that can't. And it's sort of why I don't like the idea of, like, Patreon or uh, paywalls behind websites. Like, the Epic Storm will always have free content. I will never charge anyone for content. Uh, just because, like, that was one of the first things that I learned. And it's, like, almost like taxing the poor. Like, if you can't afford this, you don't get to know it. Um, and I don't like that. So... Like that was my first level up, I guess. It's just like going to the source and reading what better players had to say, and then me absorbing that information. I used to spend six to eight hours a day reading the source at that point. When I moved to Roanoke, um, I had sort of an in-person equivalent of that, where like my F and M's and weekly tournaments were just stupid stacked. You know, Brad Nelson, Jerry Thompson, Todd Anderson, you know, Tom Ross, you know, all all those big names. Just getting to, like, play against high-caliber players and, like, listen to the things that they had to say and hear their advice was so helpful. Like, even, like, even though many of those players weren't, like, dedicated legacy players, like, I was playing a lot of standard then and a lot of modern then, and, like, access to that additional information was a huge boom in my, like, competitive success in Magic. So, Brian, it sounds like your early experiences, you were already in tournaments, like talking about going 2-2. I played Magic probably 10 years before I went to a tournament. Well, I went to one tournament. 
There, there was a Wizards of the Coast retail location that opened up in a mall near me. That was a thing that they tried for a while. And I went there because I heard they had magic tournaments. And I'm like, I play this game all the time. I could do well in a tournament. And I didn't know what formats were. Like, like no, no one does. Yeah, I, I just didn't know that there was a standard and an extended and whatever. So, like, I got there and they were like, I had, like, some deck that I was really proud of. I don't even remember what it is. And then uh, the one of the other people just, like, happened to walk by. And he was like, yeah, you can't play that deck. Like, this is type two. And I was like, what even is that? And then the store employee, I, I just pulled out my long box full of decks. I didn't even have deck box. They were all, It was just a long box with, like, decks separated by, like, rubber, rubber bands. bands. Or, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Like, nothing was sleeved. Like, I didn't have any... It was just a long box full of the cards I own. And the the store employee just, like... In my memory, he was kind of, like, dismissive of me. But he was also helpful enough that uh, we identified a deck in my box that could be legal if I took the fireballs out of it. Like, I had some busted-ass old, like, third edition fireballs that I just threw in. And it was a... Five color Cavu tribal deck. Like it was literally just like I had opened enough packs and had enough Cavus to notice this was a tribe, and I put them all in a pile with some lands that could cast them. And that was the deck I played in my first tournament. So this was probably like 2001. And then I didn't play another tournament until probably like uh 2006. I was already well invested in tournaments by 2006. I was actually probably fairly okay at Magic by 2006. I went straight from playing in, like, the after-school club and, like, thinking that, like, I want to be better than this kid to, like, I'm going to go to this game store. Like, my parents just dropped me off. I had no friends. I just walked in. And I was like, I would like to play Magic the Gathering. And they're like, okay, let me see your deck. And then I entered my first Legacy tournament where uh, my first opponent intuition for uh, Double Squee Forbid and I was just like, I don't know what's going on. They're like, I'm going to counter every single spell you play for the rest of the game. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, like, they got Squee Mastercore. And I was just like, okay. They're like, all your stuff dies for the rest of the game. And I was like, okay. And then I just sat there. And then the next round, uh, the guy literally, turn one, went, game one, Dark Ritual Engineer Plague Elf. And he's like, all your elves will die from now on. And I was just like, oh. And he's like, okay, well, you have two losses. You can't win anything. You should probably go home. And I just called my parents. Like, no one told me that I could keep on playing nothing. Oh, that's fucked. Yeah. yeah. My brother... So, I didn't play... I, I should specify I didn't play a Magic tournament until, like, 2006. Uh, I, I was really into the Yu-Gi-Oh! TV show when it dropped in America, and so I had to get the cards when it came out. And I played a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh! tournaments. Like, I, I, was, I was a grizzled card tournament veteran by 2006, but it, just not Magic. And... Uh, I was playing in a tournament with my brother once and he got the round two buy or maybe round three. Like he lost, lost, got the buy and he read the pairings and thought they were saying bye to him, like get out. <laughs> and he was, I just like found him like with tears welling up in his eyes, like in the corner of the room, like midway through the round. And I was like, what's wrong, dude? And he's like, you're kicking me out. I'm so bad. So that that <laughs> my brother had a similar experience to you did with that you should probably go home uh but so my my Yu-Gi-Oh experience was like weirdly formative of my magic experience though like in addition to like the the skills you get of like knowing how to interact with an opponent how to shuffle cards how to that sleeving is important how to call a judge like 
all of that stuff came through my Yu-Gi-Oh years. But I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh at the only game in town in New Jersey, which is a, a famous game store uh, that ran a really famous magic team back in this era. Uh, like uh, Patrick Sullivan owned the store at the time and like uh, Gerard Fabiano and Craig Kremples and Asif Lebedovich, they, they were like in and out. Like we had like Finkel and Flores stopping by because uh, New York City was just uh, like 45 minutes away. Like we, it, it was a stacked magic location and this was happening like in my periphery as I tried to get really good at Yu-Gi-Oh! Like I remember I was in the store playing a Yu-Gi-Oh! tournament when uh, Craig Kremples won Nats in 2004. And like the store was like in an uproar, like, woo, we did it. We won Nats. And I was just like, OK, can we pair the Yu-Gi-Oh! around? <laughs> but but uh, like sh- what shoved me back into magic was watching those guys test affinity in standard, like busted, like skull clamp affinity. Like I, I was, it was just between rounds of a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament. I don't remember who it was, if it even was like a big name, but like two, I, I, I was watching some people test standard and I, I just watched them go like artifact land, uh, thing, thing, frogmite, et cetera, like mirror enforcer. I have seven power in play on turn one go. And I was just like, holy shit, I could be doing that. And then, uh, I, I started taking my, Yu-Gi-Oh prize packs in Magic, like I, because like the prizes were pack based, so I I would play Yu-Gi-Oh to win Magic packs, and that just steered me back into Magic from there. I actually know a number of people who got back into Magic through that avenue. Yeah, it's so exciting. But going back to tournament Magic, so two years before I had started playing Magic in two thousand two in tournaments. By 2004, September, the BNR split. So the magic that I'd been playing, Type 1.5, became Legacy. So like everything was uplifted at that point. I mentioned that I played a lot of Food Chain Goblins previously. Like that was like one of the first competitive decks I built. Like I had built like Suicide Black, and like I guess I I I think maybe I built uh, Blue White Red Land still after. I think it was after because I did play Blue Red Red Land still too. Like it was my first big top. I I top aided uh, an event with I could have been playing Managerians, but I couldn't afford them, so I just played Counter Target Spell. Uh, but the format shifted, and when that happened, all the older kids that uh, allowed me into the source, like half of them, just quit the game because they're like, "Well, if I can't play Bizarre Baghdad and Mistress Workshop, I don't want to play." Should have stuck around a little while longer. <laughs> They're a bunch of maniacs. Those cards suck. Ugh, both of those are miserable cards to exist. But to each their own. So uh, we, we've we now heard from you that you were playing Legacy Tournaments from the womb. So the next section was going to be, when did you discover Legacy? But you're already there. So uh, Phil, when did you find Legacy? So that kind of like my senior year of college, I was mostly playing like casually playing scars of Mirrodin draft. I drafted that format a lot, but just kind of like I was a local game store slash like kitchen table magic player at that point. And then after that, I like moved and went to grad school. And in that like three month transition period before grad school started, I was in a state where I literally did not know a single person. And I'm like, Oh, how do I meet humans? And so I, I started playing Magic more competitively. I, uh, I started driving to Baltimore to play into events. I started going to D.C. to play events. And so, like, I kind of transitioned, like, 
from kitchen table player to more competitive player at that point. But I didn't have the money to play Legacy. Like, I was on a grad student stipend slash, like, unemployed for that summer. So I spent about six months going to Star City Opens and GPs just to trade and grind value on the trade floor. And I built into a, like, precursor to Death and Taxes because I couldn't quite get the last couple of cards. And I played my first Legacy event at Dream Wizards in Maryland. And uh, I, got to, I got to play against Jarvis Yu in round three of that event. And I will never... Who's that? I, I don't know, some scrub. <laughs> so, some old guy? Uh, he didn't beat me, though. That's, that's what matters. We got a draw because I believe I Armageddoned him three times in a game. <laughs> Count it. Was he playing lands? No, he was playing, like, fucking Miracles, like, with Jace and, like, good cards, and I'm showing up with Student of Warfare and four Armageddons and, like... I'm glad you didn't lose. Sword of Body and Mind. Yeah, like, that's what I remember from that event. I remember not losing. I remember get, getting paired against Rug Delver in round one and having, like, Sword of Body and Mind in my hand and going, like, oh my god. Yeah, you can never lose. How do I lose? I'm just gonna mill them out. Speaking of sort of body of mind, I'm going to take a quick second here and stop you. Uh, a friend of mine, we did every single, uh, like, the pre-releases in Syracuse, there two, there's, like, the normal one on Saturday, but Sundays two had a giant. We had a, a running streak of, it was like, we got up to, like, 50 consecutive matches without losing in these two-headed giant tournaments. And we were like, yeah, we're just, like, really good at two-headed giant, I guess. Or pre-release players are really bad. It's definitely the latter. Until we got paired against somebody who got opened up a sort of body of mind, uh, whatever they called. The the nice ones. The thing that Brian's giving away. The masterpiece. The masterpiece. And then that broke our streak. And we haven't done one since. Yeah, you, you gotta quit when you lose. Uh Two-headed giant is only fun when you're undefeated at the end of the day. If you lose even once, you're like, why did I sign up for this? This is bullshit. That, that's been my experience. Sorry, I didn't mean to completely derail you. I just wanted to share that stupid story. Um, so over about the next six months, I actually like acquire the ports and uh, the other cards that I need. And I, rem- I well, remember... The port back then was a ton of money. Yeah, it was rough. Uh, it was like $60 for a beat-up yep. one. And I remember the last card I got for the deck, it was a Caracas. And I went to this game store, uh, which is like 40 minutes away, to play in this uh, like event for duels. And I get there, and I see this Caracas in the case. And it's like about $40 cheaper than it should be. And it's graded. And I look at it, and I'm like, I would like to buy that card. And the guy's just like, yeah, sure. So I buy this Caracas and this Alpha Circle of Protection Red, and then I'm like sitting there with a pocket knife and a screwdriver trying to free them so that I can put them in my deck for the event. Let them go. Let them go. Yeah, I uh, I unslabbed two Caracas and an Alpha Circle that day. It was a it was a good day. Nice. Um, yeah, but from there I stayed like. As competitive as you can be while in grad school and you have no time to actually travel, I, I went to, like, events that were within, like, an hour radius. And then I moved to Roanoke, and that's when I transitioned to my, like, I will travel eight hours for an event every weekend if the opportunity presents itself period of my life, in which I lost a lot of magic. Because I wasn't actually good enough to be doing that yet, but it was hella fun. Right, that... That segues perfectly into how I discovered Legacy. 
because, uh, like I said, I got into Magic tournaments in 2006. Like, I probably downloaded Magic Online in, like, 2004, and I figured out drafting, and I really liked drafting, and then that, like, segued into finding a game store, and they liked Constructed, so... Uh, and then I had a group of, like, uh, college-age people willing to travel for events, which was the first time I ever had that. And so we did the PTQ circuit, like, uh, Old Extended and, like, Lorwyn Block Constructed. Like, those were the PTQ formats at the time. And we were driving to Maryland, Philly, Jersey, uh, Rochester, Columbus. Like, we were all over the planet playing PTQs like you do. And I was not very good. Like I was losing a lot of matches. I was spending a lot of money and I didn't have a robust collection and keeping up with a PTQ metagame. If you've never had to do that is the stone worst. Uh, back then, Mike Flores had a, a weekly column on the magic mothership called swimming with sharks, where he would run down every PTQ result from the previous week. So whatever won last week's PTQ you had to be ready on like Thursday afternoon to figure out the deck, figure out if you could play it and get the cards for Saturday morning. And like, that's how you had to stay competitive. And that was an expensive prospect for someone who just didn't own all the cards. So I did that for like two years to no success at all. And then like, I was consuming magic content like crazy during this time. And just in my consumption of all magic content I could find, I was reading like uh, Matt Elias and Adam Barnello and uh, Brian DeMars and the guys who were writing about legacy and vintage. And I'd never played a game of the formats, didn't know anything about them. But like one day I just got sick of the PTQ grind and sick of buying new cards. And I was like, I'm an eternal magic player now. Just fucking decided it. And I, I bought a set of Underground Seas like that week for 150 bucks for the set. And uh, I had the Fetchlands already from uh, Extended and uh, like a lot of staples overlapped, like Pernicious Deed and uh, Thought Seas and Engineered Explosives. Then I just started buying Dual Lands, Force of Wills. I actually, since we were talking about Savage Trades, uh, I got my first set of Force of Wills. I traded... Uh, two Meg Rooms and an 8th edition Persecute for my first set of Force of Wills. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to lie, like, when I proposed the trade, I was like, is this... Can I do this? Like, the, the guy was kind of a scumbag. Um, and not that that makes... Two wrongs don't make a right, but like, to this day, I don't really feel bad about this because he was such a shitbag. And, like, I proposed the trade thinking, like, He's going to shoot me down. And then he was like, are you sure that's enough? Like from my side of the trade. And I was like, no, dude, you're good. So like, uh, that's where my set of force wheels came from. I had Tarmogoyz from standard. So like, I, I just like be put together some number of legacy decks, still never having played a game of the format. I proxied up power. Like I, I had a, I built vintage storm, just sight unseen. Uh, and then I, I just like was a legacy player now. And that's about the same time that Star City started running their legacy 5Ks, like the predecessor to the Open series. So it, it was lucky that uh, there were there was a real tournament series to get into right at the time my interest existed. So that's how I found legacy. Just pretty much pulled it out of my ass. So uh, there's two parts I want to mention here. 
it's weird that like Syracuse has always been like this hotbed for legacy up until the last few years now. Like the people that were so invested in the legacy have grown up or moved away or whatever. But like part of the source started here and it was like a big identity. So like when people would move to Syracuse that played magic, they're like, why don't, why doesn't anyone here care about pro tour qualifying formats? All anyone does is play legacy. It was just like really strange. Like people would move here and be like, Oh, where can I find a standard PTQ? And they'd be like, what? Uh, we, there's a legacy, like 2k or something coming up, but like, that was it. Like no one cared about anything that wasn't legacy. Um, and the other thing is you mentioned Adam Barnello. He would tell you that I, w- I am his little brother. Uh, like the Epic Storm was developed on his kitchen table. And uh, he was the idea or the main person behind the team that I was on that TES is named after. He was the one that named it Epic and all that stuff. So, yeah, th- this was the era when uh, Ely was running like a monthly 40 duels in Vestal and like uh, that there was some other store uh, in a town that's name is escaping me right now uh elmira right Mi- uh, that was games. a little li- that was a little bit later yeah it was a little later it was a little after the jupiter games era but like i remember like being up there and like seeing like the team epic t-shirts and stuff so uh yeah legacy definitely has deep roots in upstate new york and pittsburgh now is kind of the same way like y- you can't find a standard tournament they don't fire and but like modern legacy like we crank it out I guess not today because of COVID-19, but in general, generally speaking, that's how it is. I remember, I mean, I, we're mostly just reminiscing this episode, but uh, we were playing because we used to just jam games on his kitchen table all the time. Like we, I'd be at his house pretty late and then he would drive me home. And I was attacking with the Xanathorm and I kept on losing the bolt. And I'm like, why does my protection lose the lightning bolt? This is so dumb. And then I was like, why don't we just play Orm's Chant? Because, like, people are using chants against me. And I was like, why don't I just use that to stop you from playing counter magic? And then we started doing that. And that's when TES probably got its first big improvement. Because, like, I went from playing, like, cards like Defense Grid and Xanon Swarm to Orm's Chant. And, like, the deck just started winning a lot. All right. I've got another good level up moment. So, my first year that I was playing Star City events was just soul-crushing. Because I bubbled out of every event that I played in for almost a year. Uh, when prize payout was to top 64, I got like 65th, 66th, 68th, 69th, 72nd, 78th at like six events in a row or something like that. And every time my record was good enough to cash and I just didn't cash. And I was so frustrated. And I, I was finally like, I was like, okay, I'm done with death and taxes. This deck is garbage. I'm going to play Miracles. And I played my next event with Miracles, and I, I cast with it, and just, like, broke my streak. And I was like, okay, this is fine. And I tell this story, because in, like, round eight, Joe Lissette is watching my match. And I'm playing against Dredge, and I make an egregious mistake, because I misunderstood some ruling about, like, bridge from below timing or something like that. And after the, the match was over, I, I, I said, like, hey, like, I know you play this deck. Do you have any advice for me? And he said something along the lines of, yeah, if you're going to play Legacy, make sure you understand how everything in Magic works. Uh, because like, if, if you don't understand everything, you, you can't play optimally. And his words were more pointed than that at the time, but that's the, that's the gist of what it was. And I went on... To- Even that's a little cold. 
it, it, it was it was said in a way that was inspiring. Um, and I went on to become a level one and later level two judge because of that conversation, because I realized like, yeah, I'm, I'm messing things up that I shouldn't be messing up because I don't understand things well enough. And my gameplay improved a lot when I had a better understanding of like the core mechanics of the game and timing and whatnot. Yeah, that's a huge level up. Uh, like, I also became a level one judge in college. I quickly became level two. I, I guess I am still technically level two, uh, close to you know fourteen years later or whatever. And like understanding exactly how things work, like being able to like see the stack in your head. Also, playing Magic Online helps a lot to visualize how stacks actually work. Uh, like. I, I've had some, like, sweet legacy heroic moments where I, like, was able to manipulate the stack, like, make a Flusterstorm counter an extra thing for insane value, like, that sort of stuff. And that goes down to the basic level. Like, just yesterday, I was playing in an M21 draft, and I was facing down Teferi's Tutelage, which is whenever you draw a card, your opponent mills two. My opponent had that, and I had three cards left in my deck. I go to my draw step, there's two cards left, and... My opponent's at three life, I have two two twos, and they have the two three looter in play. And my hand is opt and cancel. And I was like, how do I get this damage through? So I cast the opt. Obviously, they tapped their looter in response to mill me out, so the opt would kill me. Then I canceled my opt and attacked for four. And like, I, I don't know what percentage of magic players would have found that. Like, I don't think it's a like 4,000 IQ play, but it's not intuitive. Like, I, I imagine that some a ma massive number of people on Arena would not have made that play and won that game. So, like, just finding those little nuggets uh, and, like, being a judge and being involved in, like, the conversations about rules and layers and stack interaction and stuff, like, all those years really advanced my game there. Yeah. Because there's so many times when, as a player, where, like, when you have to call a judge to ask a rules question and like you step away from the table, your opponent gets to go like, what could they be asking a question about? And then like, there's a rest in peace in play and they're like, Oh, so you have a removal spell for this, huh? There's, there's like a lot of like things like that, that where like you give away information or like you stepping away from the game to ask those sorts of questions breaks your concentration. Like just being more comfortable with the game at an intimate level means so much. Yeah, uh, exactly to that point. Uh, I had an opponent at a Star, Star City Legacy Open. I was playing uh, some bug control deck, and they were on Natural Order Bant back when you could play that. And they end-step Vendillion clicked me, and I showed them my hand that had Parish and Spell Pierce in it. And they asked a question of the judge away from the table. And I knew the question was, does Parish kill Progenitus? So I knew that they had Natural Order in hand. And just, like, from them asking a question. So, like, that... And like I and I also knew I had it covered because I had spell pierce and perish, so I was good either way. So just that those little things uh, matter a lot. I remember being at a Star City around that time period, where somebody played a Vendelian collect, didn't say anything. Their opponent revealed their hand, and then they go, "I'll target myself." But like they had waited a super long time to say anything. And, like, those are the sort of scumbaggery things people would do in paper back then because it was technically within the rules where I don't think that would fly nowadays. 
Yeah, the culture has shifted a lot. Uh, definitely when I was TQing in my uh, 2007 era, it was a badge of honor to just like scum someone in some legal way. Like uh, judges call it not sporting behavior because unsporting behavior is an actual penalty, but not sporting behavior is legal, but fucking lame, like the come on man kind of things. And it, it was kind of a badge of honor. Like the writers at the time, like... Uh, Benjamin Peebles Mundy and like Jerry Thompson and people like that uh, in that era, like they would write designate sections of their article how they got this nerd. And like that, I'm glad that part of the culture is gone. I'm glad that I play so much of my magic on magic online now, because like there are still all of these feel bad situations that happen in paper. Like right now, obviously like I'm hurting for a paper magic tournament because of this whole COVID thing. Um, but, like, one of the last paper events I played in left a very bad taste in my mouth because, like, someone did a scumbag thing on camera. I called them out on it. Judge ruled with my opponent. And, like, now it's one of those things that I still get messages about on Twitter a year later. It's like, hey, did your opponent cheat here? And I'm like... No. <laughs> Begrudgingly, no. Oh, no, it was very clear that... Going they, back they to uh, early level-ups, I, I will never forget this. Uh, so this is back right when Kamigawa Block came out. And I played at my local game store that didn't never... They never had a judge on staff. They had their, like, tournament organizer who just, like, ran the tournaments. And Cranial Attraction was, like, the first standard legal card that broke $20. It was a really big deal. Because, like, back then, like, Morphlings and Intuition were, like, 25 and those were, like, two of the most expensive magic cards. Uh, and I had a cranial extraction, and my opponent's playing a survival of the fittest base deck. And I'm playing Burning Tog with, like, Nightmare Familiars, Psychotog, Flametongue Kavus, and Upheaval. And I, yeah, my love for Burning Wish goes super far back, you know. That's the only reason I'm telling this story. But secretly, I Burning Wish for cranial extraction because I only had the one. I play it. What do you think I name here? Is there a survival in play? There is not a survival in play. I'd probably name that. So, uh, like, 13-year-old Brian Cook agrees with you. He names survival. His opponent goes, okay, resolves. I pull four survivals out of his, out of his deck. He goes, no, you name survival, not survival the fittest. Put them back. And Is the, that actually a magic card? Uh, I don't know if that's how the rule worked back then, but the person running the store uh, agreed with my opponent. And that's okay. what happened. There is no magic card called Survival. And for a variety of reasons that are now covered by policy, I know that in the, the past it was fucked, but uh, you, that would work now. But yeah, I I feel you on that. Um, I, that's like the old Persecute trick. Like you cast Persecute against like Mono Blue and you're like, I'll Persecute Red. And they're like, okay, resolves. And you're on resolution, I named Blue. Uh, <laughs> That is also now covered by policy. You can't do that anymore. So, like, there were a lot of... What about the like, therapy? It's the same. So, uh, the the way the ruling works is that if you say, like, Cabal Therapy, Force of Will, and they say Resolves, you've named Force of Will. If you say Cabal Therapy, Force of Will, they brainstorm in response, you can now change your name when it resolves because there's new information. Yeah, that, that's how cards like that work. Like, Pithing Needle, same way. Uh, all that sort of thing. 
So, so I think uh, going back to uh, like our next level of leveling up, I was right out of college, probably around 2011, 2012. And I got home from college and I was playing a lot of standard because a lot of the better areas in the player had in, in the area had started playing standard. So at first I was playing like the mono red deck and I played a little bit of like the polymorph and emerald deck, but eventually new Phyrexia hit. And I was reading a lot of Jerry Thompson's articles. Like this guy was clearly very good at magic and he would publish like two articles on starcitygames.com a week. And I just could not get enough Jerry Thompson. I would read everything he'd write and then I'd play my own matches. And like I would adjust my Delver list for standard based on what he was doing. But I wouldn't necessarily play his lists, but like I would read his theory and then make adjustments to my own list. And I grew a lot during this time period. But one of the biggest things I learned wasn't from Jerry. It was from uh, a pro that had recently been released from prison, Pat Chapin. And he had a stigma around him at the time, but Wizards immediately allowed him to do coverage. And during this time period, he was doing coverage for, I believe it was a Grand Prix, where he kept on saying that, wow, this person got raped this match. And he wrote an article about it, and I, I can't remember what it's called, but I have it saved in like a bookmark somewhere, where he talked about how embarrassed he was after because someone had written him and was like, hey, do you know what that word means? Uh, it's about being sexually assaulted and what happened in this game of magic had nothing to do with being raped. And he like immediately felt ashamed and started working on um, his vocabulary at the time. And he wrote this entire article, which is honestly, I've reread it again a couple years ago and it's super preachy, but at the time it really hit me hard about the way that the vocabulary and language that I used. And it, com it just made me take a really big step back because I had a local EDH play group that I played with. And they would say a lot of nasty things around the table. And a couple of times after I read this, I had gone back and they're like, hey, why aren't you trash talking? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm okay with saying those words anymore. And it just completely changed my life. Yeah, that, that article, by the way, is called Words Mean Things. And it you can find it quickly on Google. Like, and that is the title of the article. And he's right. Words do mean things. And uh, I also read that article. There was also a phenomenal article called by uh, Jordy Tate. I believe it was his like sign off article, like F you guys, I'm done with the magic community, but it was like a long article about uh, uh, like the realities of uh, women versus men, basically calling out male privilege. And uh, he, I believe he talked a little bit about like uh, using uh, words that evoke sexual assault to describe a game, which is obviously wrong. But he also just like talked about like, the female experience of like uh, if I approach a woman in the bar because I am interested in getting to know her, my worst case scenario is she says no to me. Her worst case scenario is that she gets sexually assaulted or murdered. And like just he he describes that in a way that just like really opened the eyes of my like uh, slightly toxic edgelord college self that who really needed to hear that. And uh, like that's a big level up as far as being a human being we've been talking about magic specifically but like how you interact in magic tournaments how you talk about what happened in a game and how you just like interact with humans in your life uh, are all all of these things came from magic articles for me uh, at least in some part yeah and i think that was the message that i was trying to deliver here is like i grew as a person because of magic and there's been a number of times in my life where i've improved as a person because of magic but like that article hit me really hard at the right time like you mentioned yeah 
yeah, like uh, th- these are the communities that need to read an article like that. And uh, kudos to Star City for publishing it. Kudos to Jordy for writing it. Like that, big stuff. Uh, <laughs> good stuff. Um, go- taking a little lighter turn uh, back into actual Magic: The Gathering strategy. Moving to Pittsburgh was an enormous level up for me because uh, showing up to CMU draft, uh, Carnegie Mellon University is what CMU stands for if you're not from the region. And I mentioned earlier that I learned, I cut my teeth on card tournaments at the only game in town in New Jersey. And now I'm playing at CMU in Pittsburgh. And if you know anything about Magic Pro Tour history, the CMU Target connection, Target being the acronym for the only game in town, the CMU Target connection was one of the first Magic teams. Like Randy Bueller, I believe it was, he just like figured out that if we put our heads together and take real data on like matchups and stuff, we can beat everyone who's trying to figure it out on their own. And that like uh, the team CMU back in the day, Randy Bueller, Aaron Forsythe, Mike Turian, uh, Eugene Harvey, like these, these are all... Uh, uh, in the Hall of Fame, most of them work for Wizards. Most of them still make the game today. Like that, it's it's a serious pedigree going there. And those guys were all uh, gone by the time I came. Obviously, they were in Seattle making Magic. But uh, when I got there, uh, Rich Shea was finishing his PhD at CMU. He I drafted with him every week. Uh, I met uh, Alex Bestecki, Chris Stagno, um, Steve Rubin. Uh, Bill Senaway, just a bunch of people with Pro Tour experience or like uh, work. Like Chris has a master's in game design, like so deck building stuff like that I had never considered came from him. And the, the like specific, I learned a lot of things in a lot of ways playing with that group. But uh, one specific like flashbulb memory for me is we had a legacy tournament coming up and we were working on some deck. Uh, and like we we were just like theory crafting, uh, talking about the legacy deck while we were drafting. And then between rounds of the draft, Chris started laying his deck out on the table, like sorting it and laying it out so we could see all the cards. And I had never done something like that before. Like all of my you know like group think was all theory crafting. Like I would talk to my friends about my deck, then I would go home and work on it. And Chris just laid out his deck on the table and like. I had the split second of like, okay, what is this idiot doing? Does he think I'm actually going to like sit here and look at his deck for a while? Like, I don't want to do that. But then like Rich came over right away and he like leaned in and he was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. And and they started moving cards around and like uh, physically mapping out the sideboard plans. And I was just like, holy shit, this is so much better than doing it on your own. And like, that seems obvious uh, to anyone who's worked with other people on uh, tuning and testing and building magic decks but like actually laying out the cards with the other people there that was the first time I had ever been exposed to that and they did it like it was natural like obviously like I'm gonna lay out my deck we've been talking about it for an hour so that was a huge level up for me that knowing that I had something to offer when someone did that and I could do that if I needed offerings from other people like that was huge I've talked about this previously because we did a similar episode uh, back when Anurag and Wilson were on the podcast. But uh, something else that I this is another article that really inspired me. And Brian Braun Dwin wrote it, and I believe it was in 2012, maybe 2013. It was about like, how do I close the door? 
And at the time, I had been playing a lot of Magic, and I knew that, like, I was supposed to just, like, try to not let my opponent have the thing that killed me. But he, Brian Brondwin wrote an article all about cutting off your opponent's avenues. And at the time, I read it, and it, like, it didn't really hit me. And then, like, a week later, I reread it, and I was like, oh. And, like, at that time, I just... It completely changed the way that I would play the second half of a game, because I was playing a lot of Standard at the time. And I want to say... It could have been, like, the first Ravnica block. I could be wrong. But I just completely started changing the ways that I would play the Sphinx's Revelation deck midway through the game. And I started, my win rate just went drastically through the roof. That was I remember that I exact had. article. That was a, a very pivotal article for me as well. Uh, because I was also playing with the Sphinx's Revelation decks at the time. And, like, I was also mucking around with death and taxes, so just, like applying some of the philosophy of that to that deck was really important for my growth. That's the whole thing about playing Death and Taxes. Exactly. It's just like, how do I lose? Close that door. Now what? Now what's his out? Close that door. Like, that. that's it. Like that, And that's that's so huge. Uh, like I, I know Patrick Chapin, uh, we mentioned him once already, but he has some more, like, uh, theory, like, out there kind of brainy articles that he's written, and they aren't all good. But he definitely had some where he described, like, that sort of thing. There was one where he tried to make a grand unifying theory of Magic the Gathering, which, uh, I mean, read it if you don't value your time. Like, it, it's basically just a lot of academic words with no substance. But the, the, the articles he wrote that are, like, a tier more on Earth than that one, uh, I, I learned a lot from Chapin. He, he was writing prolifically when I was really cutting into competitive magic i value ideas from someone that thinks a little bit differently than i do and i specifically remember watching pro tour fate reforged and he was the only one playing Gurmagangor, and everybody else was laughing like literally the coverage was laughing at him for playing Gurmagangor. they're just like yeah he's playing this common delve card when he could be playing tassiker and like it's just like he thinks differently and Honestly, Magic could use more people like that because I think groupthink is a really big problem with this game. And there's a lot of like legacy chats out there where a lot of people will agree with something someone else says because they're supposed to be an expert. But I think it's actually more critical to think, hey, is that actually true? Uh, I know that this person thinks that, but like, why? And then like, well, I think this card might be good because of X or whatever. And just try to not necessarily agree with people because it seems like the right thing to do. Just like, Try to be a little more critical and come up with your own opinions. Yeah, lately, uh, like since uh, uh, Throne of Eldraine came out, uh, I've been the comment I've gotten the most in uh, in chats, in videos, on Twitter, on YouTube is, "Why are you boarding out Uro against Delver?" And it has been my experience that a a card that takes a lot of work to get into play in a meaningful way that dies to a stiff breeze. Uh, like it, Pyroblast, Surgical. Yeah, Pyroblast, uh, Caracas, uh, like, yeah, like Lightning, like Lightning Bolt plus Dreadhorde Arcanist. Like, it's a lot of work to get that thing into play. And the effect of a Growth Spiral that gains three life is not a card I would play in my Miracles deck or my Snow deck. So, like... I have tons of videos where, like, you see me boarding out uh, Uro against uh, aggressive strategies, and the the number one comment is, "Why do you cut Uro? It crushes Delver." 
like those exact words, it crushes Delver. And that has just not been my experience in play. And maybe other people are playing similar decks in a different way where their plan is Eurocentric and they, they bring in like their, their wear tear to kill their, the opponent rest in peace and then rebuild up to an Euro again. I'd rather sidestep that whole game. Like, uh, so I, I currently hold an unpopular opinion and uh, I think that the way that I have mapped out my matchups, I am correct. I like a phrase that you use there uh, where you said, I'm stumbling in my words now, but uh, you chose to think differently and uh, like you cho- you're just choosing to go around something rather than through it. And that's something that I've always felt pretty strongly about magic where like if somebody's like, going to play all ground creatures why don't you play flying creatures like if they're if they're looking to hit you with a jab why don't you get them with an uppercut like sort of thing and i remember i was playing like going back to the sphinx's revelation there was a weekend where i played in a ptq in poughkeepsie and then woke up in the morning and drove down to jersey and played another ptq i mean the, the results on the weekend were very good but unfortunately i didn't win either i think i came in uh fourth and second or no, it was top eight and fourth. And I was playing that Sphinx Revelation deck. And at the time, I never, ever, ever boarded out Dissolves no matter what. I was like, I have to be able to stop Green Merchant. Like, that was my thought process. Like, you have to be able to stop Green Merchant no matter what. And I would board out Divinations against the discard deck because I was like, I just can't. I, the slots need to line up and I have to board out Divinations. So I had lost in the top four of one of the event in Jersey to Mono Blue Aggro. And I died with a pair of dissolves in my hand because I was like, well, you have to be able to counter Thassa or else you only have your two, uh, what's it called, deicides in your deck in order to answer them. And I died with a pair of uh, dissolves in my hand. I kept the three lander, never hit a fourth land for Supreme Verdict. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and they're like, you're supposed to board out dissolves and keep in divinations. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's see if you make top eight. And I get home. And I'm like reading a Reed Duke article and sure enough, Reed is like, yeah, you should be boarding out dissolves for divinations because it's better to just like not care about this access and instead do something different and go over it. And that's something that like kind of opened up my eyes a bit and especially about my own attitude towards uh, constructive criticism. Yeah, another huge level up that some magic players, some adult ass magic players I know never have never reached is the ability to have a constructive, critical conversation like, hey, why did you make that play is not necessarily an attack. It could just be like, did you not see the other one or did you see it and think this was better? If so, why? I'd like to understand it and let's talk about it. Like I would have done something different with the same cards that you had there. And like a a number of people, like you just said, like uh, I I was there once too, where it's like, oh, let's see if you make top eight jerk, like nice plan, idiot. But like they're they might be right. And even if they're not right, it's worth discussing. And uh, like lately, I've hit some big level ups lately. Uh, Since I I won the GP and Q for a string of PTs, uh, I tested for PT Phoenix with uh, Matt Sperling and Paul Rietzel. And those guys obviously are are just like huge, smart names in the game. Paul Rietzel, Hall of Famer, one of the best limited players to ever play the Pro Tour. Like he's uh, like they're great. And 
like I I would post in our our group chat or our group Facebook page where we were running things and like they would come back with like a, a counter of like I like two thirds of your point but have you considered this and then like getting in a real conversation rather than getting defensive and then for the last PT uh, I I got invited to test with the the team seven percent because the team is huge it was like seven percent of PT Arizona uh, Alan Wu and Mark Jacobson are the captains and then it was just like everyone you've ever every mid-level grinder basically is on this team and i got thrown into this giant discord that they run with like tons of channels tons of contributors and it was like where do i start like all of these people have pro tour success all of them are very smart all of them know standard better than i do like what do i how do i contribute and so and then i figured that like the answer is to just do it so i just started like throwing out my thoughts based on you know games i've played or like theory crafting and uh some of my stuff was just like i think that like someone would just reply like i think that's off base here's why and then i would have a better understanding of why what i was doing wasn't working or like i would say something and immediately like several people would be like oh yeah that makes a ton of sense i'm gonna try it that way so like having the confidence to put yourself out there knowing that if you're wrong that's good like it, it is good to be wrong around other smart people like be wrong in testing don't be wrong in the tournament and that's something we say on this podcast all the time it's okay to be wrong just like extend put yourself out there bounce your thoughts off people who are better than you and uh you will your thoughts will improve very quickly based on that one of my favorite things you said there was that this was a recent level up like Oh, absolutely. Last six A lot of our listeners might put us on these, like, giant pedestals of, like, you know, we're we're giants in the community for various reasons, but, like, we still have so much to learn. Like, one of the things that I wanted to cap this episode off with was, like, the fact that I, I am still having, like, huge breakthroughs. So, like, my current one is actually all about, like, my attitude and approach as a, a content creator, you know? How how do I grow as a person who is helping to foster a community? And I like I'm trying to work on doing more of the little things right that like a lot of people aren't going to notice. I'm trying to be more more conscious about pronouns. I'm trying to be you know more constructive in what I'm saying. You know I'm I'm trying to actively keep in mind that the person on the other side of the screen is a human being and not just like dump on them for like the horrendous plays that they're doing. I'm like right now very actively trying to get better as a human while producing magic content. And like, that's a huge level up, but it's something that would, you know, maybe go unnoticed. Yeah, that, that is a big one. And that's a tough spot as a content creator. Like being entertaining while also respecting that, there's a person on the other side who might come in contact with your content is like a big part of it. Like you messaged me before we were on this podcast together because I was streaming one night against you. And I was just like, and like you, you like perfectly blind named like a Phyrexian revoker or something. And I was like, Oh, we got another ghoster ghoster in the stream. Blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, it was me trying to be funny, but like clearly it was not read that way because someone brought it to your attention and then you messaged me about it to like, because you were also streaming, like you were able to like show video evidence that you weren't ghosting. You're just good at your deck. 
And like, it was like, oh, that was supposed to be a joke. It wasn't read that way. And like, that's really tough to balance. Uh, and like, I, I, there was one night I was streaming uh, Delver, like, like some Delver deck. And I had all like the Delver brains in the chat. Like Lawrence was there and like uh, tons of people were weighing in. Uh, Harlan Fear was in the chat. Like it, it was just like, and you know, the Delver decision trees where it's like, okay, do I cast Brainstorm or Ponder? And then once I do, where do these cards go? Like, what do I put back? How does, and we got into this like tricky situation where like, I saw my clock ticking away. This brainstorm was just like in the middle of resolving. I just had all three cards still in my hand. The chat was going nuts. Like I was trying to process all the information and like, I must have looked really flustered and upset because Anurag messaged me the next day. He was like, Hey, are you doing okay? Like you looked pretty upset last night. And I was like, did I? I didn't even notice. So being able to put yourself into a community where you have someone like Anurag who can be like, hey, you looked pretty upset, and then also be in a brain space where it's like, oh, did I? I should work on my mannerisms when I'm streaming. Like that, all of that, those are all level ups, and they translate directly into how you play as well. Like when I'm in paper magic, my mannerisms are totally different now than they were before I started streaming. Like I, I am, I am looser. I'm friendlier. Like, uh, like, like we've said a number of times that like 2007 era where like it was your job to be just like a ruthless assassin zombie with like you don't have a pulse, you never smile, like you win the tournament and you just nod your head, accept your trophy, and walk out the door. Like that, like that's that's where I came up, and like being able to you know, expose yourself to all those different things and like come out with a different outlook is a huge level up. Yeah, I'm not proud of some of the things that Grinder Phil did, but I'm pretty proud of most of the things that Streamer Phil does. But I I still have a, a lot of growth. So uh, recently, I've been playing a lot of other formats. We talked about Vintage. I've been playing a lot of Pioneer. And this week, I was playing Pioneer. And my opponent starts BMing me in chat. And I, I choose to ignore it. They're like, hey, you're on the Eternal Glory podcast, right? Or uh, they say Everyday Eternal. I'm like, it's glory, but yes. And uh, they turn five and for a combo with me, and they're like, good games, well played. And I'm like, all right, I see what you're doing here. Uh, they're like being like a smart little edge lord. And then I win game two, they have no comments. And in game three, they give me a one-turn window to win the game, but they have three open mana. So I can beat a Mystical Dispute, and I think that's good enough. Like, I can deck them. So I decked them, and uh, they're like, well, this is why you're a pro. And I'm like, I'm just a guy. I'm not a pro. And then they unravel the ether, their only line of the void. And they're like, ha-ha, bitch. Put this on your podcast, asshole. You fucking new blocker. And I was just like, all right, man. Good luck. And I share it to some of my friends. And they're like, oh, you should, like, post a screenshot to Twitter and, like, tag them and call them out. I'm like... I don't think you get it. Like, I can't do that sort of stuff because it blows back on me being a content creator. Like, I look bad if I ever did the same sort of stuff they did or if I rage in chat. Like, you just can't do that sort of thing anymore. Like, you have to be very self-aware of your image and what you do and what you say and that sort of thing. But also, going back to the pronoun comment you made, Phil, I brought on a video uh, content creator to the site that I actually never ended up publishing a single video because they submitted four videos and in it, they either kept on calling their opponent a he, said something that wasn't appropriate, 
or just like something wasn't right about the video that I don't want to disclose. But like, there's a lot that goes into it, and you have to be very aware of how it looks on you and your brand. Yeah, like I said in the intro, I've been playing a lot of Hearthstone Battlegrounds, and when I have like a few minutes to watch a stream, I usually watch uh, Brian Kibler because he's usually live and playing Battlegrounds, and Kibler always says he, like one hundred percent of the time, like oh he he got a good attack there, he did like, and it bothers me because uh, like I'm I'm pretty conscious about using neutral pronouns, and uh, sometimes I slip up or sometimes I think i have the gender correct but i don't like i called uh, uh clothis uh a a he in a tweet recently and apparently clothis is a female character i just didn't know that uh and like i felt so bad about it i deleted the tweet but we have this like world famous esports multi-sport personality just uh, screaming for ten thousand viewers he this he that he that and like it, it it's weird because like it doesn't affect me like i am not the demographic that is going to be upset by that because i am a he but i i'm at a stage where i can understand that it bothers someone else and thus it should bother me i think that's pretty important yeah i I, i'm doing some little things to try to help with that like I'm, i'm doing some standardized questions when i invite guests on the air like i'm doing little things like how do i pronounce your name what pronoun do you use? Like, I, I want to make sure that I'm getting those little things right. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to default to they. And when my uh, when my chat asks questions, like, why did he do that? I respond using they instead. Um, you know, l- little things. I, I think they matter. They, they matter very much to some people. And I don't want to be exclusionary in the content that I'm making. Right, that... That a thing that is like nothing to you could be everything to someone else, and that's a huge deal. And like identity is like basically all we have at the end of the day. So like just calling someone the wrong pronoun or mispronouncing their name when you could just message them and ask how to pronounce it, like those sort of things. Uh, like I I streamed uh, a Harlan Fears uh, Blue White Delver deck back in uh, like two years ago when that was a thing, and I realized during the intro to my stream, I was it was like I was live. I was like, "Hey everyone, tonight we're playing Harlan Firer, Far." Like, like I, I realized as I was saying his name out loud for the first time that I didn't know how to pronounce it. Like Harlan was a friend; we interacted all the time, but I don't say like, "Excuse me, Harlan Fear, come over here." Like I'm just like, "Hey Harlan," so I, I messaged him like immediately while I was live on stream, like phonetically, how do I pronounce your name? And it turned out both of the ways I thought it might be pronounced were wrong. And it's just fear. Like, the word fear. Like, you're afraid. There's a small micro-inflection in the middle, like, fear. But you can't even hear it. But I, I was just wrong. And I could have just said that dude's name wrong a hundred times on stream over the following week. And instead I didn't. And I, I'm pretty proud of that. Even though it's it's small. A lot of people probably wouldn't notice. All right, so we're probably going a little bit long at this point. Are there any lasting messages that the two of you would like to leave our viewers or listeners, I should, I guess I should say? Words are tough. Basically, like everything, all of these level ups we've talked about, both as magic players and as people, have boiled down to like, be nice and listen. Like that, that 
I think every single story ultimately ends up there where it's like, if someone has something to say to you, be receptive to it. You don't have to agree to it, but at least consider it and then explain why you don't disagree. Like if you have a position, you should be able to articulate it. And at the same time, be nice. Like even if the question is preposterous, like, uh, like, Bryant, why don't you play Seething Song in Epic Storm? It makes a lot of mana. Like, even if that question is, like, to to your, like, Epic Storm brain, just like, that's a terrible question. Like, there's a reasonable explanation. Like, oh, three is too much mana to get the chain going. Like, we don't need that much red. Like, that sort of thing is, like, a way to answer that without being, like, because it doesn't work. That's stupid. Wait, are you saying that, like, my default answer of visit com isn't good? Uh, maybe that if that is your default answer it might not be the most constructive <laughs> one how about you phil um if i were to add something else it's that toxicity benefits nobody like being stubborn in your ways is something that like for all, i think all of us have hit on in different ways like that doesn't do you any good you know lashing out salting out in chat doesn't help you improve like if, if you're actually looking to improve whether it's in terms of like play skill improving as a person like you know keeping your your sanity during like covid magic times like trying to be a better person be more acceptive accepting be more receptive to what other people are saying like communication will go so far in helping you improve as a player all right, and my final message will be work on self self growth. It came up on Reddit this week when someone posted asking what's the best advice for winning a challenge. And honestly, this goes for magic and life in general. Just focus on improving yourself and eventually you will get the results you're looking for. Uh don't just look to go from point A to point B. Take a more holistic approach, like just try to, you know, improve yourself altogether and that sort of thing. I know we're wrapping up, but I have a perfect anecdote for exactly what you just said. Uh, a couple of years ago, I realized I was spending a lot of time on the road, a lot of, missing a lot of opportunities to spend weekends with my my non magic friends. Like I was missing like like if there was a Star City Open and a friend, close friend's birthday on the same Saturday, it was like oh sorry I'm out of town, and that that was just like I was missing so much, and I decided I was going to slow down and stop, and I was going to finish that season. And then just, you know, accept that it's not going to happen for me and, you know, maybe play a local thing here and there, but I wasn't going to be on the road two or three weekends a month. And then I accepted that mentality and I chilled my shit a lot. And that was the season that I won the Star City Invitational. That was supposed to be my last event on the road. Like I was never going to drive six hours for Magic again. And then I just like, with that shift of like, my value is not my tournament results. I have friends. I have stuff I can do outside of Magic. Like, I'm going to just shift my approach to preparing for this. I'm going to shift my approach when I'm playing it. And then I just won the tournament. And that was like a life-changing moment in multiple ways. So uh, I believe that ties into the point you were just making. And uh, I'm a lot healthier because I, I still have that mentality. Like, all of my success since then has been with the, like, if I don't want to play Magic today, I'm not going to mentality. 
I think that's an awesome note to end on. That's a that's a great anecdote and something I, I've written on and talked about on stream multiple times. Like if you get too caught up on like I, I can't put up the win, uh, you know, you're gonna drive yourself mad. So that's not what it's about. And that's been the Eternal Glory Podcast. 